123 testing 123 this is radio free mormon on the air broadcasting behind enemy lines tonight's episode is the final session of april 2023 general conference the sunday afternoon session now actually i thought this was going to be a sleeper because typically that's what sunday afternoon session is it's a sleeper it's boring they throw in all the general authority 70s who don't usually have a chance to talk we get talks about i don't know ponderizing and things like that in ages past but this session was anything but a sleeper. There were some very significant talks that were given, both for good and for ill. It was the best of sessions. It was the worst of sessions of General Conference. Leading off was Elder Oaks, who gave the strangest General Conference talk I think I have ever heard in my life. He didn't really have anything to say other than to read a list of scriptures of sayings attributed to Jesus Christ, whether that was in the Bible or the Book of Mormon or the Doctrine and Covenants or the Joseph Smith translation. All he did was read a long list of sayings of Jesus. It was almost as if he were doing his own version of the Jefferson Bible. Now, he did introduce this reading of scriptures, which took up over 10 minutes. I mean, I kept thinking he would be done, and he kept on going. I didn't keep track of all of them. I stopped at around a dozen, but then he kept going for at least a dozen more. He had at least 24 scriptures and probably more than that that he read about Jesus. They were not connected in any way. He didn't speak about them or his interpretation or why he was using these particular quotes from Jesus. Indeed, this was an instance in which... All of the quotes that he gave of Jesus resembled the Sermon on the Mount and the way it was constructed because there are all of these disparate sayings of Jesus that get conglomerated together in one sermon. Elder Oaks was kind of doing the same thing with this talk in general conference. There was no rhyme or reason discernible into why it was that he was listing these particular passages of scripture, except for the fact that he announced at the beginning that he was going to be presenting them in what were almost exclusively chronological order. That was the only rhyme or reason that he announced. Now, there were at least three of these passages of scripture, which in light of the SEC scandal, seemed almost self-condemning when he said them, because he's quoting Jesus to beware of false prophets For inwardly they are ravening wolves, but you shall know them by their fruits, because a good tree brings forth good fruit, and a corrupt tree brings forth corrupt fruit. And I'm thinking, is this some kind of admission that you're making, consciously or unconsciously or subconsciously or something? Because why are you saying this when we know, along with the rest of the world, that you and the other members of the First Presidency are, in fact, corrupt, at least insofar as it comes to conspiring to file fraudulent statements with the federal government in order to conceal how much money you have. Why is it that you're talking about false prophets? Now, I can't imagine that he is consciously and intentionally identifying himself as a false prophet, and yet that's what I'm taking away from it. He goes on to quote another saying from Jesus. Now, these are not all three together. They are interspersed throughout this two dozen or so sayings from Jesus. But he also quotes, what is a man profited if he gain the whole world but lose his soul? My goodness, 
How is that supposed to be any more ironic from an individual who's sitting on top of $157 billion in the Enzyme Peak account? He has certainly gained the whole world in that sense, but his soul is in jeopardy. Why? Not because of anything else he's done, but because he has put his love and his fidelity in corruptible treasure in gold, in the things of this world, instead of the things of heaven. And Jesus was very clear that you can't do both. You can't put your trust in the things of man and the things of God at the same time. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will love the one and hold to the other. This is why I see this as another subconscious, self-condemning quotation of a saying of Jesus by President Oaks. As if that's not enough, he goes on to talk about quoting Jesus when he says that he draws all men unto him and then he will judge every man by his works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. Well, I don't know if you're saying this consciously, President Oaks, but Jesus is looking at you and what you are doing with accumulating this vast hoard of wealth and not sharing it with the members of the church and the poor and the needy inside and outside of the church. And on top of that, lying and deceiving in order to keep the members of the church from knowing how much you have so that the members of the church will keep paying you money that you can keep growing this dragon's hoard of wealth. That is the work that you are in jeopardy of being judged for according to this saying that you are giving us of Jesus. I mean, it's almost like he's a Vietnam War prisoner who's being trotted out in front of the camera and he is talking the party line, but at the same time, he's actually blinking out in Morse code, the word torture. It's almost like Bonnie Corden who can't stop talking about her grandson, Derek Corden, and the suspicious circumstances under which he died, except that she wants to make it into a series of spiritual experiences. Is there something that is compelling Elder Oaks to bring up these sayings as well? At a minimum, at a minimum, it's lazy writing. All he does is go and pick up all these scriptures, all these random scriptures from the New Testament and other places, sayings of Jesus, and reads them from the teleprompter. Why does he have nothing else to say? I don't know. But is he once again hiding behind the skirts of Jesus? Like I said in a previous General Conference Digest from this morning, I believe it was. And by the way, I want to bring up something else because there is one apostle who is missing from these proceedings. Remember, we talked a few weeks ago, at least on Mormonism Live, about what are the apostles going to do and what are the other 70 going to do at this general conference now that they know how corrupt the first presidency is and how they violated the law and how it is that they themselves should be subject to a church disciplinary court. Are they going to just raise their hand and sustain them and go along with the program regardless of what's right and regardless of what is just and regardless of what it is they should be doing? Or will any of them raise their hands in opposition? Well, none of them raise their hands in opposition, but there is one apostle, one apostle who did not raise his hand to sustain the first presidency, at least not publicly, and that apostle was Jeffrey R. Holland, whom we are advised was not there because he has covid well, maybe he does and maybe he doesn't. Maybe he has COVID and he has to stay home 
Or maybe that's just an excuse because Elder Holland finally discovered a conscience, a conscience that would not allow him to raise his right hand to sustain the first presidency, and therefore he comes up with the excuse of COVID so he doesn't have to be present to do so. I know it's a long shot, it's wishful thinking, it's Elder Holland for crying out loud, but maybe, just maybe, there is one apostle who could not bring himself to sustain the first presidency after the SEC revelation. The second talk was given by Elder M. Russell Ballard. He talks about things that are most important in life. And these are, of course, things that involve doing what you're told to do by the LDS church leadership. However, it's talked about in different terms as it always is. Our personal relationship with Jesus Christ is number one on the list of most important things. Our families is number two. Uh, number three is follow the promptings of the Spirit. And number four had to do with something else that I can't quite remember because it really wasn't that compelling a talk. Honestly, Elder Ballard, as much as anybody else, seems to ramble when he talks. It's like stream of consciousness. It's almost like his talks are written by James Joyce. But he did give an important story when it came to talking about following the promptings of the Spirit. And this is a story that he's given before. It was familiar to me. And this is back when he's a bishop. He's leaving the bishop's office one night. Hopefully it's a Sunday. It's 10 o'clock p.m. It's snowing out. It's the winter. And this impression comes to him that he should visit this elderly widow in the ward. And so he thinks about that. He thinks, look, it's 10 o'clock at night. She's probably asleep. It's snowing out. I'll go home tonight. I'll go visit her first thing in the morning. Well, he tosses and turns all night. He gets up in the morning. He heads over there in the snow, gets to the house, greeted by the elderly widow's daughter who informs him, hey, nice to see you, but my mom, she just passed away two hours ago. So he uses this as his illustration as to why it is we need to follow the promptings of the spirit when they come and not delay them because otherwise we might miss the boat. And he says he was devastated by this experience, but his conclusion that he draws from this is quite instructive, I think. Now, he doesn't elaborate on this like he could have, but this is the conclusion he draws. This is a quote that I wrote down, and I think it's word for word, quote, that Elder Ballard, quote, reasoned away the strong promptings of the Spirit, unquote, because once again, he has a prompting from the Spirit to do something, but he reasons it away. It's late, it's dark, it's snowing, she's probably asleep, and so he puts it off, and then he misses the reason for the prompting of the Spirit in the first place. And I think the lesson there of this story is that if you have a prompting of the Spirit, don't reason yourself out of it, right? Which can then be interpreted and applied to if you've got a testimony of the church, don't reason yourself out of it. Common sense should have no part in this. If you've got a testimony, you stick with it regardless of what your reason and common sense tells you to do, and you'll stay with it forever, as you would with anything if you approached it with that kind of criterion. Next, we get to Elder Rasband. You know, Elder Rasband, I always like hearing from him. He seems a genuinely happy person. He's affable. He's avuncular. And he always seems to have a smile in his voice. Well, he's going to talk about Palm Sunday. Everybody and their dog is talking about Palm Sunday. I mean, I know it's Palm Sunday, but it's like Mormons just discovered what Palm Sunday is. So everybody's talking about Palm Sunday in some way in their talk. And Elder Rasband is no different. So he talks about all the people carrying the palms back 2,000 years ago when Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then he ends up segueing from the palms that they carried to the palms of Jesus and the prints of the nails in his palms, which are 
symbolic of his atonement. So then he starts talking about the atonement. He talks about how certain principles of the gospel are illustrated in Jesus's final week, the Holy Week. He checks off prophecy, the Holy Ghost, discipleship, and the atonement as very important things that were illustrated in that final week. I was a bit surprised when he talked about the king of a certain village, I think it was Accra in Ghana. And then he says he was present. And in general conference, this king is present. I don't think he's a member of the church, but he is apparently a king who is present in conference. And I will admit it was a bit jarring to me to hear an apostle of Jesus Christ, Elder Rasband, say, welcome your majesty. Because I kind of thought that apostles had only one king and it was Jesus, but maybe this apostle can have more than one king. I did note that later on, and not that much later on, Elder Rasband referred to Jesus as the king of kings, as if he's trying to put this king who's present in the audience a little bit more in his place. Yeah, you're your majesty, but there's a king above you, and that's Jesus, and that's the real king. So I think that's probably why he put that there. It could be just a coincidence, but I don't know. And then he brings up the parable of the ten virgins. It seems like we can't go past a conference without hearing the parable of the ten virgins at least once, and I guess it was Elder Rasband's turn this time. And we all know about the oil in the lamps, and five had it and five different, and the typical standard Mormon interpretation is, is that the lamp is filled with oil by continued obedience to what? to the words of the living prophet, President Nelson. He even makes that explicit. He then refers to the idea that a lot of people have bucket lists of things they want to do before they die. He says, don't be doing all these things before you die. Fill your bucket with oil. That's the important thing, is to be faithful, to be obedient, to follow the commandments, to do what President Nelson says. And by doing that, we fill our bucket with oil so that finally when we do die, then we can go to the place that's the best. It's not going to help us at that point to have gone bungee jumping or visited exotic locales and filling our bucket list that way. No, we just need to be obedient, which of course plays into the whole idea of Kevin Pearson recently telling the seniors in the church that they should prayerfully consider serving not just one mission, but two full-time missions as seniors in the church. See, that's the kind of thing that you do to put the oil in your bucket. You do that instead of going out and enjoying things and enjoying your grandchildren and having a nice retired life at the end of your long days of labor. So I thought that was a clever twist on the idea of a bucket list, but on the other hand, mm, it ends up making members of the church slaves to the church from birth to earth, from cradle to grave, from womb to tomb, from birth to earth. Now, the next talk was given by a 70 named Vern Stanfill. I thought this may have been the best talk in General Conference and perhaps the best talk I've ever heard because what he's going to talk about is the plague of perfectionism in Mormonism. And he acknowledges that this exists. He says it's not good to have. It's bad. Let's not have it. But he also has to deal with the fact that the church does encourage people to, well, kind of be perfect. But he changes that and says, okay, there's this perfectionism that's bad, but being perfect in Christ is good. And at this point, I thought, okay, he's just going to be playing word games. He's going to say, okay, we don't have to be perfect, but we have to be perfect. Kind of like Elder Holland has done in past general conference talks. But he fooled me. He actually followed through. And he gave some very interesting examples of giving our best efforts, which may not be much, but that they end up being sufficient when moved upon by 
the power of Jesus Christ. Now, he's first talked about how he came from a farming family. And when he was a kid, fall was his favorite season. They'd be out there, they'd be harvesting the crop. And his dad had some kind of mechanized harvester for the wheat. And he'd be out there with his dad and his dad would have to keep readjusting the machinery so it would catch the maximum amount of grain and not leave grain on the ground. Well, even as good as his father could do it, there's always some grain left on the ground. And he, as a child, picked it up, showed it to his dad, and his dad told him that that was the best the machinery could do. Well, he thought it was a waste at the time, but obviously dad knows best. But he says that when the winter came and it got cold, the swans and other birds would come and land in that same field and they would eat the grain that his father was unable to harvest. And that is when he said he saw that the imperfect harvest of his father was made perfect by the swans and the other birds that ate the grain that was left over. I thought that was a beautiful image. And then he talks about some other examples from the scriptures. And he talks about them in ways that I had not necessarily considered them before. The first example is the feeding of the multitudes with the loaves and the fishes, right? We all know the story, but the way he looked at it was looking at it from the point of view of this lad. He's referred to as a lad in the particular version of the story he was reading from the Gospels, who brings a few loaves and a few fishes. There's a vast multitude of thousands. The kid obviously knows that this bread and this fish is not enough to feed the multitude but he gives it anyway because it's all he has. And then through the miraculous intervention of Jesus, it is made sufficient. It's made enough to feed all of these people and there's still some left over. I thought that was a great example of how our imperfection can be made perfect in Jesus. We bring what we can. We don't have to feed the thousands. We just bring what we have and Jesus is the one who makes it enough. He also talked about the incident where Peter walks on the water. Peter gets out of the boat and tries to walk to Jesus on the water because Jesus commands him to, but he starts sinking and Jesus reaches down and helps him up and says, Oh, you of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? He then imagines a creative conversation between Jesus and Peter shortly after that when they're back on land where Jesus says, I love you, dear Peter. You got out of the boat. As a positive thing. I could not believe I'm hearing a general authority and general conference saying that getting out of the boat is a good thing because up to now, all we've heard is stay in the boat, stay in that boat. Don't you get out of that boat? And now we hear, now we hear Elder Vern Stanfill quote Jesus as saying to Peter, you did good. I love you. You got out of the boat. Your offering of trying to walk on the water in faith is made perfect in me by reaching down to you and lifting you up so you could stand next to me on top of the water. What a great story. What a great take on that story, in my opinion. And I think that with his closing comment of whatever our gift, however inadequate, the Savior can make it perfect. I think that this authority, Elder Stanfield, manages to thread this very difficult needle of the difference between perfectionism and being made perfect in Christ. I think this is a talk for the ages. Get rid of the proclamation on the family. Take this talk, put it up on the wall of your home, and read it every day. That's my counsel to all Latter-day Saints who are listening to this program. 
The next talk was by W. Mark Bassett. Oh, he tells the story of Lazarus, and he goes into some detail about the story of Lazarus and Jesus waiting and then showing up, and it's four days later, and he's already dead, and now Mary and Martha are upset with him for having waited so long because he wouldn't have died if Jesus would have come, and then Jesus goes ahead and raises him from the dead. So what he tells the audience is, why did Jesus wait so long? I mean, the account says he waited. This is in John. It's only in John that this particular miracle occurs. And by the way, in John, the raising of Lazarus is the last miracle of Jesus's ministry, because that is the miracle that gets the Jewish leaders so mad at him that they decide they have to crucify him and get him out of the way. In the Synoptic Gospels, in which this miracle of Lazarus does not appear, the galvanizing factor and the last miracle of Jesus's ministry is not necessarily a miracle. It's his cleansing of the temple. That's what gets the Jewish leader so mad at him in the Synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that's what precipitates his getting crucified. But the synoptic gospels have that there. John has the raising of Lazarus from the dead there at the end of Jesus's ministry. So what the author of the gospel of John does is he doesn't get rid of the cleansing of the temple. Instead, he takes that account and moves it to the beginning of Jesus's ministry. That's why in the gospel of John, you have the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And in the other three gospels, you have the cleansing of the temple at the end of Jesus's ministry. But the question that Elder Bassett talks about is why did Jesus intentionally wait until the fourth day? And then he likens it unto our own lives where we pray, we want Jesus to come, we need his help, but he doesn't show up. He doesn't show up. Where the heck is Jesus? We're doing our best. He's leaving us hanging out to dry. But he assures us that that fourth day will always come if you hang in there. Of course, the question he doesn't answer is what happens if the fourth day doesn't come? What happens if Jesus never shows up? What happens if God never helps us with whatever it is that we're struggling? That was the weakness in his talk. He didn't even say he'll come to us in the fourth day, even if the fourth day is after we die. He just left it hanging there as a wonderful promise for everyone to hold on to until the end. It was similar a little bit to the talk I've heard about the fourth watch of the night, that Jesus comes in the fourth watch of the night. Okay, so, oh my gosh, now we get to the talk that's going to have everybody buzzing. This is Elder Hachmed Corbett. He used to be the first counselor in the Young Men's Presidency. Yesterday, he was promoted to become a General Authority 70 and standing up there as one of the very few black general authorities in the church. He gives a talk that is totally unobjectionable except for one part, and it's that one part that's going to have everybody buzzing, and it's going to have clips played in TikTok and on YouTube, believe me. He frames his talk in terms of a story that was a personal story when he is on a bus, and he's over in New Jersey, he's working in New York, and he runs into this Asian lady who's not Christian. That part was not clear at first until the story progresses, but she's obviously not Christian. They're sitting next to each other. She sees that he's a Christian by what he's writing on his computer, and she asks him about being Christian, and then he tries to explain to her why it is that he's a Christian, and he realizes suddenly that this is going to be difficult because he's trying to explain it to somebody who has no Christian background. It's a lot like what happened with me when I was in Japan, right? You're talking to an audience that is largely ignorant of anything related to Christianity. There's no common basis there to talk from. Like if you're over in a Christian nation, you already have this belief in Jesus. At least people understand about it, even if they don't believe it. And you have a common basis to work from. Here you got to start from scratch and you have got to examine your underlying assumptions. And he doesn't do a good job of it. Now, Elder Corbett is a very good 
calm, measured speaker. And he is obviously well-educated and highly intelligent. But what he does say is in this bus trip, when he's trying to describe about Christianity, he says that despite everything he thought he knew about the gospel and the scriptures, that it wasn't easy to explain why Jesus had to die. Now, I'm thinking, no kidding. Why did Jesus have to die? But he realizes that in her mind, she will not understand why Jesus had to die. This is the fundamental problem of Christianity. Well, why would he have to die? And why can't God simply forgive us of our sins? That is the fundamental problem in Christianity. Whether it's resolvable, I don't know. I haven't heard a good resolution to that, at least not one that's persuasive to me, as to why God the Father can't just forgive us of our sins the way we forgive one another when we say we're sorry, and will you please forgive me? And the other person says, yeah, okay, I'll forgive you. God the Father appears to not be able to do that with his children unless he makes a bloody sacrifice of his firstborn son. So that seems very strange that we as Human beings have a power to forgive each other that God the Father apparently does not have. This is one of the reasons this is a fundamental problem in Christianity. I thought Elder Corbett was going to try and answer it, but no, he doesn't. Instead, he at least acknowledges the problem, but then moves on from there to talk about why it is we need to have a Savior to save us at all. You know, he didn't really do a good job of this because he talks about the plan of salvation and he talks about that there will be an adversary, an enemy who will try and keep us from doing what is right, who will make it so that we sin and therefore we need someone to come and save us from our sins and that someone is Jesus. Of course, I'm back in the mind of this Asian woman and I'm thinking, well, if you just got rid of this adversary, this enemy, the Satan figure, then maybe you wouldn't need someone to come in and save you at all. So if you get rid of Satan, then you don't need Jesus. That would be the logical thought to have in response to what it is that Elder Corbett was saying. I don't know if this Asian lady had it. She was probably too nice to mention it to him. Elder Corbett's talk then starts becoming a very basic talk where he starts talking about the reason that Jesus came and there's physical death and there's spiritual death and Jesus comes to overcome both of those things and the way we access Jesus's power in order to be saved and return to heaven to be with God forever, which is where everybody wants to go, of course, is by faith in Jesus Christ, repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end, what he calls the doctrine of Christ. But here's where it gets controversial, folks. Here's where it goes downhill. Because he says that there are parents in the church. He addresses them specifically. If you are parents in the church and you have a child who has a problem, with some doctrine of the church or some policy of the church or some position of the church. I think we all know what he's talking about, right? Whether it's their position on gays and homosexual rights or transgender rights or any of a host of things that young people and older people, by the way, but most of the younger people could have a problem with. What he tells the parents is the one thing you don't do that you should never do is commiserate with your child's problem. You don't criticize the leader of the church you don't take your child's part against the church. You don't put your child above the church's teachings. You back the church 100% of the way. And you lovingly, of course, tell your child that it's the church's way or the highway, that they are not right. And certainly you don't become an activist. He says that word again. He was famous for giving a talk a few months ago 
decrying activism in the church, saying activism is great everywhere else in the world except in the Lord's church. And he's going to revisit that theme here in the context of the parent-child relationship. So if you have a child who's gay and your child who is gay has a problem with the church's position on how unequally they treat gay people in the LDS church, you are directed in this talk to not take the side of your child against that teaching of the church. You back the church all the way. And I suppose the supreme irony is that once again, he puts all of this stuff, including this teaching of choosing the church over your child under the heading of the doctrine of Christ. So the doctrine of Christ is now that you choose the church over your child. And that's three CH words in a sentence. I think it should be a bumper sticker. It should be a t-shirt and it should say, choose the church over your child and then have a line under it and attribute it to Elder Ahmed Corbett. So that's going to be the most controversial talk given in this entire general conference. Elder David Bednar now takes the stand. And after <laughs> and after Brother Corbett's done, he's got nothing. I mean, really, how is he going to follow up that talk by saying something controversial? So Elder Bednar gives a really, really boring talk, a pedantic talk. He's famous for these kinds of talks where he talks about Enoch who established Zion and how Enoch was told by the Lord, if you abide in me, then I will abide in you. So he spends like the rest of his talk defining the word abide and how it is that we can have Jesus abide in us if we abide in him. And perhaps not surprisingly, we end up abiding in Christ this is the short version by doing everything that the living prophets and apostles tell us to do. And Jesus will abide in us as long as we do everything that the living prophets and apostles tell us to do. Elder Bednar finishes his talk by doing a typically Elder Bednar thing, which is to assume that he knows more about the gospel than the members of the church. And he's going to tell the members of the church that there's a lot of them out there. There's a lot of you members out there who will go to church. You'll do all your callings. You'll believe all the testimonies that are given about Jesus Christ and how he's there for each person individually. But you don't believe it yourself. You don't believe it. You haven't found this divine connection, this rainbow connection between you and Jesus and felt of his divine love and his divine empowering. And he encourages everybody, you know, like he has. He's got it all figured out. That's why he's telling us, because we don't understand these things as well as he does. So he encourages all of the members who haven't figured it out yet like he has to figure it out like he has. The final talk is given once again by Elder Nelson. So Elder Nelson speaks twice in this general conference. He speaks on the Sunday morning at the end and also on the Sunday afternoon at the end. And he's going to talk about the fact it's Palm Sunday. Yep. Believe it or not, everybody, it's Palm Sunday. Was there any speaker who didn't mention the fact it was Palm Sunday? If there were, they were in the distinct minority. So it's Palm Sunday today. It's going to be Easter Sunday next week. He encourages everybody to read all the scriptures that have to do with Easter and this Holy Week, including in the Book of Mormon when Jesus comes to visit the Nephites. Yes, once again, we get another third Nephi 11 reference. He tells us that whatever doubts or questions we have, don't ask him, don't ask your bishop. They are all found in the life and teachings of Jesus. So read the scriptures, and apparently the life and teachings of Jesus will explain to us why it was that Joseph Smith married girls as young as 14 years old, married other men's wives, and why it was that he had approximately 33 wives in addition to his wife Emma, whom he kept in the dark as much as he possibly could about all of these extramarital marriages. I'm not sure what gospel in the New Testament answers those questions, but it's got to be in there somewhere because President Nelson says so. Now he's going to announce 
more temples. He's going to talk about all the temples that there are in the world. He says that each of the temples that exist are built to Jesus, that they are each Jesus's holy house. Jesus, Jesus has a lot of houses, as it turns out. Not just one, but hundreds now. And he's going to announce plans for 15 more temples. Yes, 15 more temples. The world does not have enough temples. Thoreau once said we can never have enough of nature. Nelson says we can never have enough temples. And I lost track at the end there. I didn't get all the names. I did get most of the countries. There's Guatemala. There's Peru. There's two in Brazil. There's two in the Philippines. There's one in Jakarta. There's one in Hamburg. There's one in Alberta, Canada. There's one in San Jose. There's one in Bakersfield. There's one in Springfield, Missouri. There's one in Charlotte, North Carolina. There's one in Pennsylvania. And there was a 15th one that I actually missed because I was so excited writing all these down. And the audience appears to be very happy too. There was an audible shout of joy at the mention of Charlotte, North Carolina. So I know they're happy in Charlotte tonight. Well, that is the end of General Conference. That is the General Conference Digest for the April General Conference of 2023. And I will tell you that after having listened to every single talk in General Conference and having reported on it here, I need a drink. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. (laughs) 